Welcome to the latest episode of Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, adventure, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet with your esteemed hosts, Dr. Stacy Adler of the Mono County Office of Education and Mr. Christopher Platt of the Mono County Free Library. Hey everyone, it's another episode of the Oxygen Starved Podcast, where we bring you your ABCs, adventure, books, and conversation from 11,000 feet. Guess what? It's me again, Christopher. And with me, <laughs> surprise, surprise, is... I'm Stace. Welcome back, Stace. Happy to be here. And we have with us, as always, our producer, Doug. Hey, Doug. Hi, Doug. Hey, guys. How's it going? <sighs> It's fall. We are deep into fall. It's, it is really deep into fall. And, um, you know, now we're in November. It feels like this year is just marching straight along. It's right? still, it's, this is my favorite time of year. I wanted to slow down so we can enjoy it more. Are you nesting now? Almost, yeah. <laughs> Getting there. Getting there. Getting there, yeah. It's, it's, it's soup season. Is really... I, that is for sure. We're having a lot of soup in I cooked two new soup recipes the other week, and awesome. I'm so excited about that. All right. I look yes. forward to hearing more about those offline. I hope everyone had a good Halloween and a safe Halloween. And yeah, I just had a, a, those of you who are, are still up here for leaf peeping um, or whatever, if you've been up here, we hope you had a safe time. We saw a lot of you on the road recently. Yes. And, and on the trails. <laughs> and, and on the trails. It's great. It's so, it's just beautiful. It's that's for sure. just beautiful. And you've been on the road recently recently. Yes, I have. Yeah. I got to see a different part of the Eastern Sierra recently. So I, I had, I had to, I went up to Lake Tahoe Mm -hmm. for a California County superintendent's quarterly meeting in our group of 58. We move around the state for our quarterly meetings. And this last one place to have a meeting. Yes, it was, it was beautiful. And I loved it because it was only, I only had to drive three hours. It was, (laughs) which is fantastic. It's like a, it's like a commute. I could have come home at the end of every day. That's hilarious. But I, I, did stay up there for, for one night. And, um, yeah, it's every time I go up to that, that part of the state, it's, it is so beautiful. And you think, you know, it's in the Eastern Sierra, but it's still, you get a different vibe than, than you do here in Mammoth, you know, Mono County where we live. Oh, totally. Every time we go up to Tahoe, I'm always struck by just how this is an overused term, but majestic that lake really is. It just is, it just stops you in your tracks. Yeah. It's just, it is so massive. And, you know, I grew up on the shores of Lake Michigan, so I know (laughs) what a big, you know, a big lake is, is like, but it, it really is just so huge. And, um, yeah, it it overwhelms you. I think it's overwhelming. Yeah. And it's a lot cleaner than it's been Mm -hmm. in years, I understand, and full. It's very full. And, um, just, just beautiful. I, were there were there a lot of people up there? There were. Yeah. There was a lot of people. There were a lot of people. There was a lot of construction. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't even hit any construct road construction until like I got into you know up Highway Fifty and oh, yeah. like into the the area itself. Lucky you. But yeah. So for if you're not familiar with Lake Tahoe, um, it it straddles the California Nevada border, and of course you know this. I was there for a California meeting, so we stayed on the. <laughs> <laughs> the California side, um, and the elevation of Lake Tahoe is six thousand two hundred twenty-five feet, so a little lower than we are here mm-hmm. in in Mon- from in most of Mono County. Um, and Lake Tahoe is the largest alpine lake in North America. I believe it. So it is really huge, and it is over two million years old. Yeah. So it's been around for a while, and it is the seventeenth deepest lake in the world. I believe that at 1,645 feet. That is so amazing. It's, um, it, it, when you say majestic, that is a very appropriate word to, to describe it. Yeah. And so it's all inspiring. Yeah. 
our favorite way to get up there, or I should say the few times we've gone up there recently from Bishop as a day trip, to your point, mm-hmm. it's commutable to right. us, lucky yes. us. Uh, we'll go up over Monitor Pass mm-hmm. in, into Alpine County and Markleyville and up the south way right. to kind of get up to South Tahoe and then, then explore from there. And the last time we were there was the first time I explored Emerald Bay okay. off to the west uh-huh. side of the lake. Yes. Gosh, that was so beautiful. And yeah. that we just found a nice hiking trail that we hiked for like an hour and a half. And it was just right along the water. And it was gorgeous. And there was a lot of traffic. But the moment you got off the road, it felt more dispersed. Like you're away from everything. Yeah. 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 It's there just like here. You know, you can be in a more populated area and then in two minutes yeah. be away from everything. And our our meeting was held up by the North Star Ski Resort. Ooh. So it was, um, you know, really nice ski resort. They've got 19 lifts and cross country and a golf course and a mountain bike park. So, you know, a lot of the same amenities that we have here. Everything Disney would have wanted. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> if he could have only gotten, stayed alive to <laughs> build the resort. But, you know, the, the reason why I think, you know, in the history books, People look back t- when they think of Lake Tahoe, they think of the Donna Reed party. Oh, not yeah. not Donna Reed, <laughs> but Donna Reed party. Um, Two different types of parties. Yes, very much so. <laughs> so the Donner party, of course, as most people know, were a group of settlers that came from Illinois. They got lost. They went off track and they met with a horrible fate of hitting a snowstorm and they, you know, are hijinks known for, ensued. Yeah, let's just leave it at that. <laughs> hijinks ensued. <laughs> we won't talk about what kind. <laughs> no, but that is a powerful story. I remember yeah. when before we moved out here, and my partner Will's read the story about it because he was into reading a lot of you know books about misfortune. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then going up to visit that site. Um, yeah. on the, it's on the north side of the lake, right? It is. Yeah. It's, on, it's over, you know, off of like Highway 80 yeah. is kind of where they have all the memorials yeah. to the to the Donner Party. And the first time that I went by it, we were actually in a, in driving through a snowstorm. Oh my goodness. Trying to get uh, back over to this side from visiting Monterey. And I just was so terrified because highway 80 is a it's a very fast moving mm-hmm. highway there are lots and lots of semi trucks mm-hmm. you see this memorial to the donner party you can't see in front of you and you're Ooh. just like oh my god just please let us get through this <laughs> safely but um but anyways so yeah i just thought it would be fun to talk about a different part of this year as this week and totally. share a little bit about Lake Tahoe and it is, it's a beautiful place. You know, it's, if you want to get away, but have the same feeling you have here in Mono County, it's a beautiful place to go. And if you, yeah, to your point, if you haven't done it, but you're familiar with the Eastern Sierra, like if you, you drive from Carson city to Reno or from, you know, Minden up to Carson mm-hmm. city and you look up at the mountains, literally on the other side of those peaks is a giant lake. Yes, it's huge that lake. close. Yes. And I think that, that also um, impresses me every time I go up there. It's like, oh, there's a massive Umpteen thousand foot lake up there. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is. It's it it over. It's overwhelming every time. You, it doesn't get old to drive through there. Drive by it. Doesn't get old like no. the three of us, right? Of course, <laughs> that's a great adventure. Yes. All right, listeners, we will be right back with an excellent book to talk about. You're dialed in to Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, adventure. Books and conversations from 11,000 feet, originating from the slopes of Mammoth Mountain in Mono County, California. You can find us at SoundCloud. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us at OxygenStarvedPodcast.com. Just make sure you find us. Listeners, we are at the B section, the book section of our podcast, and we are talking about the same book again this week. I love when we when we have to have when we get to have a discussion. Yeah. It's so much fun. And this week we are talking about a new release called The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store by James McBride. Wonderful 
book. Yeah, I think this is going to be a good it. discussion. And I, I think yeah. a lot of our listeners will have already read it because I hear a lot about people. It's It's been it. pretty well hyped. Yeah. You know, he's been on all the, the morning shows and I, I watched a couple of interviews with him you know, on YouTube and, you know, he's quite a, a prolific and highly regarded author. Yeah. James McBride is. So. And uh, someone who's adept at taking you know, historical or interesting or deep topics and making them very approachable and readable and yes. discussi- discussable, if that's a word. Ab- absolutely. <laughs> so I I feel like this story, when I started reading it, it just, it grabs you from the very beginning because the, the very first part of the book is a memory. Right. And the cadence of the way he writes that memory is so unique. I I called you like the next him like, oh my gosh, I've never read somebody who writes like this. <laughs> In his the style changes a little bit, yeah. but um, it just gra- I grabbed me from the from the get go. So why don't I give it a little bit of a setup, if that's okay? Please do. Um, and and to do that, I'm going to step back for our listeners who may not be as familiar with James McBride's books and just mention one of my favorite all-time memoirs, his first book, which came out 25 years ago, The Color of Water. And it's his memoir about growing up with a white mother. He's he's um, mixed race, half oh, black. A white Jewish mother. A white Jewish mother yeah. um, with 11 siblings yes. in Queens, New York. And she was mostly a single mom. His right. dad was in and out of the, out of the picture. Um, yeah, he was black. His mother was born Jewish. Mm-hmm. And then because she married a black man, she was kicked out of her family. family and right. she ended up converting to Christianity. Yep. And so that kind of informed him as a young adult. And ultimately, years later, informed some of his novels, including this one. Right. So... The premise of this, the story is, it opens in 1972. They're excavating a well in Pottstown, Pennsylvania, yes. which is a real place yes. <laughs> that I want to visit now that I've read this book. <laughs> um, and they find something in this well. I won't say what it is, right. but it causes this flashback to like the 20s and 30s Correct. in Pottstown, PA. Specifically, this um, neighborhood of Pottstown called Chicken Hill, Right. Right. Which was the kind of like the poor immigrant neighborhood is where the blacks live. The blacks, the Jews and the Italians. Italians. Yes. Basically anyone who um, could be looked down upon by the waspy white community right. in Pottstown the, lived on Chicken right. Hill. Who perceived themselves as being the established Right. Population. Right. And we're not giving anything away. This is, you know, you can read this much in the reviews or it, it's a new right. book, so we're not going to give the ending away. But um, that just sets up this, what I think is a wonderful character study around this Jewish run grocery store. There's a couple right. named Moshe and Chona. Right. Moshe, um, the husband, um, has opened um, this Jewish grocery store and he's also bought some theaters in town. So he, like, he famously desegregates the theaters by bringing in black jazz musicians right. that you would hear on the radio or Jewish klezmer musicians or whatever. Right. Um, that's kind of a theme in the book. And then his wife basically runs the the store. Right. And her grandfather had right. had operated the right. store, right. I believe. Yeah, her you're father right. had yeah. and so it was in her family and um yeah, Chona was she was the heart and soul of the the grocery store. Absolutely, yeah. which becomes kind of the heart and soul of the community as, right. a, as a gathering yes. place because she makes great relationships with, you know, the local African-American right. community, the Italians, other, everyone who comes in and out of that store, they all know who she is, her generosity of spirit and what have you. Um, there are some other characters that come in, Nate mm-hmm. and Addie, and um, I think it's Nate's nephew, Dodo, Dodo who is, right. is a young man who is death because mm-hmm. of an accident in right. the home. Um, and I'll, I'll stop there because that becomes a whole plot point. Right. Um, but it just shows there, there are other ancillary characters that, that feed in and out of this, this very character driven novel. This isn't an edge of your seat thriller. No. And what, one thing that I, that I noticed or uh, that I felt as I was reading it is that it was, it was like a, a layer cake. 
Mm-hmm. You know, he he sets the story, he introduces you to these central characters and then continues as the story goes on and you and you rotate from the little subplots in each chapter. He just kind of keeps layering on all of these characters who all in in one way or another come together, even though they're all from these different backgrounds. Right. And that kind of creates, um, uh, you know, some of the tension in the story, Mm -hmm. you know, because a character driven novels, you know, you do kind of have to have tension to kind of understand the dynamics. And especially at this time, the flashbacks happening in the depression era, he captures that really vividly in my mind. Yes. You know, yeah. No one has a new car. They're always driving an old car. Right. There's some so, of them are still using a cart and, and horse. <laughs> right. It's almost like reading Steinbeck Cannery Roll. Mm-hmm. Like there's everyone's kind of got a scheme going. Yes. Um, the patois or just the speech of the different people seems very much of that mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Um, and we're just very colorful and characterful, yes. which I really like when yeah. I'm reading a novel. Yeah. And then um, just the evolving relationships, especially with Chona as kind of the center star of the story. And then also then there are the larger, sorry, I'm just no, rattling go, on go for the it. larger social issues going on yeah. in the thirties, right? There's, there's, you know, the Ku Klux Klan is in town. Um, there are some darker characters in this story and those also make some of the tension um, and contribute to the plot. Um mm-hmm just of, of, of how it moves forward. I, I thought it was really interesting how the, the groups on chicken Hill, mm-hmm. they really do work together to make their lives go forward, to make mm-hmm. their lives work mm-hmm. even. And they all have that united feeling of, well, we're marginalized by right. the white people. So, you know, we're going to stick together, but yet when they separate and they're in their own homes and their own settings, they have all these issues betwixt and between, you know, they don't fully understand one another's culture Absolutely. or, or approve of it in some way. So it's like you have the, the big marginalization, the big, you know, racism, you know, piece of, mm-hmm. you know, them, them against the one group, mm-hmm. but then in between betwixt and between them, there's also another level of, of racism that, that plays out that you see. Right. It's really interesting how he did that. And, and how um, trust is gained and lost, you know, even among, you know, the black residents, there's those that came from the South and they live in a certain street on Chicken right. Hill and those that were there for a while and they don't quite trust each other. Right. It, the story culminates in them all having time to kind of cooperate to solve a problem right. together. Yes. And again, it, it just reminded me of Steinbeck every time I was reading this, like, you know, these, this, disparate group of people in this cauldron of chicken hill, mm-hmm. you know, you, you learn to live with each other and learn to, you know, understand each other, but then having to cooperate to your, to your point when there are underlying tensions and differences, um, is a challenge. And that's part of the story. Absolutely. And I, I loved in one interview, um, th- that I heard, uh, with James McBride, he said that Pottstown was his Mayberry. Right. And I I love that analogy. You know, we we all know what Mayberry USA invokes in our minds and Pottstown with all its diversity right. is is a different kind of Mayberry. A very different and kind of Mayberry. And that was his his idea of and how he grew up in this very diverse kind of culture. And that's something he wanted to bring out in this novel, right? I've read this in interviews with him mm-hmm. before about this book. It's about um showing diversity, but also uh, bringing forth the notion of equity and equality. And it's not just racial. There are multiple characters in this book with physical disabilities. Yes. um, Including two key characters who share the same um, disability Mm -hmm. and they're on opposite sides of an issue. And that becomes, again, a a flashpoint um, in the plot at some point. Um, But he does it from a perspective of love and humor and poignancy and just real respect for the characters that he's written. Um, and yeah, it, going back to the point about the, the characters with, with the disabilities, I'm, I'm into it. I don't know this for a fact cause I haven't read any of his other books, but I'm, I'm guessing that 
characters with disabilities frequent his his novels mm. quite a quite a bit and he said he was influenced because when he was a in college he worked at a camp a summer camp for teenagers with disabilities mm-hmm. and he was very influenced by how they built relationships with each other despite their their disabilities yeah. But there was one relationship in this book that just I just loved, and that was the relationship between Dodo and Monkey Pants. Can you talk a little bit about sure. that? Sure. So, you, as as you mentioned, um, Dodo is is deaf. Deaf. Um, Monkey Pants is a severely disabled young man. They are in. I don't think I'm. It's not breaking a a plot, mm-hmm. you know, piece, but they are in an institution together and they're, they're in this room and they obviously can't talk to, talk to one another. Monkey pants is nonverbal. Dodo is verbal, but can't hear. So they, they come to over their time together. They eventually develop a way to communicate, which is so um, touching and profound. And that relationship is so moving and I, I I loved that. It was one of my favorite parts of the book was how their, their relationship evolves. Yeah. Mine too. Uh, Of all the different relationships between this character driven novel, um, that I think was my favorite relationship was that developing relationship. And it's, it's kind of brief actually. It doesn't take, it's not the duration of the novel. It kind of arrives about halfway through or what have you, but it really does grab you by the heart. Um, as long with some of the other relationships here, um, and again, I, I hope we're doing the without giving away spoilers, like we're, we're doing the book justice by just saying it's kind of this, it's this neighborhood of people and yeah. just, you know, a few years pass by and how they develop and the tensions and, and what plays out on the big scale and what plays out on the small scale. Yeah. And, and, and it kind of also reminds me of, um, the winners, Bear Town. Oh uh, yes, uh, uh, Frederick Bachman. Frederick Bachman, in the terms yeah. of being able to create yes. different characters and interweave those stories, yeah. you know, and create a compelling narrative that keeps you turning the page. I I I agree with that. Uh, you know, comparison of of the how relationships drive a story right. from this to to Bachman's writing, but mm-hmm. I feel like. This is more specific in nature. Oh, right. You know, Absolutely. I mean, very specific to this time and place and, and these these people. Yeah. Um and and I just I just thought it was really, really beautiful about how when people care about one another, mountains can be moved, you know. That's a really good way to sum it up. I um yeah, I really enjoyed this book. I think it's gonna be a great book discussion pick. Yes. Just because as you referenced all the layers and the different mm-hmm. characters, um, and it, it, he just really cares about the people that he writes. Yeah. He, he did a lot of research. So this is historically as accurate as yes. he can make it. Um, and yeah, with the good and the bad and yeah. it all plays out in a way that just makes you close the book going, wow, I just read something fairly profound, but I don't feel bad. I, I feel uplifted. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I agree a hundred percent. So this is the heaven and earth grocery store by James McBride. If your book club is looking for a book to read, pick this one. Um, you, you will not be disappointed for sure. And stick around. We'll be right back with our conversation. Oxygen, a colorless, odorless reactive gas, the chemical element of atomic number eight and the life-supporting component of the air. Starved, suffering a severe and damaging lack of basic material and cultural benefits. Oxygen Starved Podcast, a colorless, odorless, culture-packed, nutritious podcast considering books, describing Mono County adventure, and engaging in informative conversation with colorful Eastside Sierra locals. Download it now. Welcome back, listeners. We are at the C, the conversation portion of our podcast, where we bring you a unique Eastern Sierra local who contributes uniquely to the live, work, play lifestyle we have over here. And today I'm 
extra pleased and extra honored to have a colleague of mine at the library, Beth Long, um, who, among other things, which we'll talk about, runs the Levining Library up in the Mona Basin. Welcome, Beth. Hi, Beth. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) I know you're a listener of the pod, right? So you kind of know what we're going to be doing over the next few minutes. Absolutely. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and just to remind our listeners, um, I am the county librarian, and we do have seven libraries across the county in Mono County. And Levining's kind of um, right in the center of the county. It's it's kind of like the gateway to the eastern portion of Yosemite. It's right there on Mono Lake. There's a lot going for that whole Mono Basin area. And I I occasionally get to cover for Beth at Levining Library, which I did recently. And I always love doing that because you get to meet the wonderful locals who yeah. come in and use that branch. And um, a new furry user of the branch, which we'll, we'll talk about too. Yeah. <laughs> but first, Beth, um, we always ask our guests a little bit about their Mono County origin story. So can you just tell our listeners like a little bit about who you are, where you're from, how you ended up here? Sure. Well, thank you for having me. It's fun to be down in Mammoth this afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) I grew up in California and uh, my father brought me up into Tuolumne Meadows camping and hiking as a young child. Mm -hmm. Um, Probably started boating the eastern Sierra Rivers, the Carson and Walker in Mm -hmm. the 90s. I was a whitewater kayaking and rafting guide. Oh, fun. Cool. The first time I went down Highway 395 was in 1999 for my orientation trip for graduate school at UC Davis, Mm -hmm. which uh, we called the Odyssey. It was the first year of an annual trip that still goes on. And we went to all the UC uh, research stations in Tahoe, Sage Hen Creek. We stopped at Mono Lake and looked at plant um, diversity with Jim Richards. And we went down to the Owens River Gorge and looked at fish with uh, Phil Peaster and Mm -hmm. went up into Barcroft Station and White Mountain Station, hiked up to the top of White Mountain. So it was a very memorable trip. Seriously? Yeah. And then the whole time I was at UC Davis, I started rock climbing at Rocknasium there and would Mm -hmm. come out to Bishop to climb in Eastern Sierra. Lots of recreation. Yeah. Yeah. Good times, good memories from those years. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of adventures. Yeah. That's like a very... uh, uh, a kind of a, an, not in-depth is the wrong word, but kind of like an intensive introduction to the area if you're coming down with Davis and you're going to all those very specific locations. Yeah. I think a lot of our listeners would appreciate that UC system has a lot of outposts out here um, doing a lot of different things. Absolutely. And and all the, all the universities that have geology programs, they all bring groups of students up here at various times to study the geology because it's such a rich environment for that. So you frequently see see the white vans and the kids pouring out of the white vans and they're college students. Yeah. So on the side of cool. 395, mm-hmm. looking at the yeah. rock cuts yep. in the road. Yeah, yeah. They're not there picking up trash. They're nope. actually doing work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you decide that you wanted to be over here permanently? Well, after graduate school, I worked in the Bay Area in Berkeley Um, But I was still coming over here to climb quite a bit and recreate. And I think it was 2007 when I moved here. And it was just a big lifestyle change. Uh, I I worked remotely still for Stillwater Sciences and moved over here. And it was for a relationship also that I wanted to pursue. And... That didn't end up working out, <laughs> but I remember when that happened and I thought to myself, well, should I move back to Berkeley or no, this is my home now. I'm going to make this mm-hmm. my home. And then, um, I stayed and shortly after that, um, you know, I found a job locally and met my partner that I, you know, have now and, and everything just sort of fell into place after that. Like it was meant to be. Yeah, <laughs> it was, um, a strange place to settle. I was living in Mono City Mm -hmm. and historically the Mono Basin is known as a fishless area. So it's kind of a strange place for a fish biologist to end up. Definitely had to reinvent myself. But um, I went to uh, just, just next door to Mono City is the Conway Ranch. And I went over there to volunteer 
to uh, look at their water quality. At the time, it was an aquaculture facility, mm. and they were raising mm-hmm. fish there cool. and in the historic uh, raceways and the historic meadow that was once a garden for Bodhi. Right. Um, and, and so I went out, out there and started working at the fish ranch and met my partner who was, uh, helped build the ranch and was managing it at the time. And um, we had both been living in this very small town with probably, you know, only one or two other single people of our age group. <laughs> so it's funny when you move, you know, from a city and then you go into this small town and you meet, you know, right. the right person. And right. Um, we ended up getting married and having family out here. So That's wonderful. Yeah. And, and just to clarify, so your graduate work was fish fish biology. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. I, um, well, I have a doctorate in ecology and, um, my mentor, Dr. Peter Moyle is a fish expert in California. So I did a lot of fisheries work and because fish are really charismatic, Mm -hmm. uh, creatures in rivers, that's why really my work sort of circled around that, but really my expertise is rivers, um, in California and the, um, the ecology of the river, so the plants and animals and how they interact with the environment. What can you tell? Uh, some of our listeners will be. I'm sorry, I'm asking all the questions. Days, just jump in oh, when you want. I will. <laughs> um, you know, water plays um, such a big role in our our side of the world, our side of the mountains, um, and some of the issues are pretty controversial. Um, but you know. The you know a lot of people come up here to fish or fish who yeah. live here, and then there's the fish that we protect. You know the the pupfish and others around the area. Can you talk a little bit about what makes the river fish ecology so unique on the Eastern Sierra for some of our listeners who may not be as familiar? Sure. There, yeah. There's a lot there to <laughs> talk <laughs> the, about the mini doctorate. <laughs> Um, well, California is very unique because of our geology and the way the mountains rose. We have a really unique fish fauna here. Mm-hmm. We have um, endemic species, which are species that are only found native to yeah. these particular areas. And they've been isolated geographically from other places. So um, here in the Eastern Sierra, and, and like all of California, water is very precious and people fight over it and we like to move it and dam it and divert it and Mm -hmm. take it. So that's another reason why um, the fish species here are of special concern. (laughs) (laughs) A good season can be good and a bad uh, dry season can be a challenge and... Is like I would imagine fish stocking and overfishing that has to be kind of carefully managed and all that kind of stuff. Right. And so then our stocked fish is a whole different um, kind of area than the native fishery. Mm-hmm. So it's really two different um, conservation concerns. Mm-hmm. So then with our stocked fish, yeah, we have incredible fishing all up and down 395. And um, we've been stocking fish up and down the roadway for fishing. And those fish come from our hatcheries and, mm-hmm. and farm-raised situations. The Conway Ranch was a really unique um, ranch that we had out here because it was free-flowing, no electricity, went from the snow melt down through the meadow and into mm-hmm. Mono Lake, so a really different kind of ranch, but typically they come from state and federal hatcheries. And then they're kind of different waterways than up higher in the, as you climb up the mountain, you have more um, of the native fisheries that are Mm -hmm. more isolated from the stocked fisheries. Mm -hmm. And then we have just north of the Mona Basin, we have the whole Lahontan range where we have the Lahontan fishes, which are very unique to that. And then we have the Great Basin range. We have their Great Basin fishes (laughs) and the high Sierra, Southern Sierra range where we have um, golden trout, which Mm -hmm. is our state freshwater fish mm-hmm. of special concern in our the Little Kern River and the Rainbow Trout and Kern River Golden Trout up there, which are special concern fish. So there's kind of all these different areas and a lot of fishing pressure too. Right. Yeah. So those are all kind of unique strains or unique communities of fish, basically. Absolutely. Yeah. So when we have a winter like we had last year, you know, this huge winter, does that have any, does it impact the fish you know, the native fish or the, you know, the fishing negatively or positively when we have a big snow winter? Yeah, the water this year was amazing. It was so different to be out there this summer and see all the water everywhere and still <laughs> right now, <laughs> now, so much water yeah. everywhere. Um, but 
Yeah, so many different ways. I mean, just last week I got to survey in uh, close to home in mm-hmm. the Mono Basin, mm-hmm. and the high. This was a really different year. We a lot of the young of the year fish, the small ones that were mm-hmm. just born this year, got washed out and just aren't there. Mm-hmm. There are so few wow. compared to normal years because of the high water. They're mm-hmm. just the reds, which are the nests of the fish, just. Um, probably got washed out or they just got blown out of the system when they were young. Wow. Not being able to swim up. Um, a lot of the bigger fish from way up in the system got pushed down into the lower mm. ends of the watershed. So you see these really big trout, wow. lake trout yeah. <laughs> coming down into the creeks, down into Rush Creek. And up in the high country, it's just was very um, wet all mm-hmm. year. In the few years past, it's been really dry right. up there. Right. So it's just very green grasses up to your armpits. So you're walking mm-hmm. through the meadows and flowers everywhere. And um, it's good for the it's good for the fish generally. I think to have these big scouring flows that mm-hmm. that rearrange the landscape and move sediment mm-hmm. um, and build up sediment behind beaver dams and create new um, inset floodplains and help um, rise like raise up the water level to connect it with the floodplain. So oh, the wow. water is just yeah. dispersing across the whole meadow and. That means that our aquifers are getting recharged. The water's sitting longer on the landscape. So there's more water later in the year for the downstream people and mm-hmm. animals and fish. Yeah. Can you talk, because you just alluded to it, can you talk a little bit about the project you've been working on this summer that's that's not library related? You're working on this other this other project. Can you just describe to our listeners what that is and a day in the life of being in the high country <laughs> doing this work? Yeah, it's a lot of different work up there in the high country, but I was fortunate enough to be able to um, get outside this summer, which was great after this long winter. <laughs> oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> and um, we had such a big winter. I started up in the and so the Sierra Nevada goes so far north to so far south. We have all these different ranges of um, special areas. But I was working high in the meadow system, starting up in the Tahoe area and working my way south to the Golden Trout Wilderness and the Sierra National Forest and the mm. Sequoia National Forest. And um, I, I had a lot of different roles. Um, I am uh, do a lot of stream condition inventorying or monitoring of what the current status is because we are doing a lot of, um, we're just starting a lot of manipulation in California of these high meadows. We're doing this low tech process-based restoration of mm. the m- creeks that go up through meadows. And so what that is, it's it's work that's actually been done for a hundred years up there, but mm. I think we're doing it on a much larger scale right now. So it's, um, so it's important to have some a lot of monitoring and sort of adaptive management going on to make sure that we're doing it in the right direction. But basically, we're just um, acknowledging that the river, um, the way the river works is is correct, that we're just trying to amplify the natural processes of a river to keep uh, the systems healthy. Mm-hmm. And we've done a lot of things in the past 50 years to manipulate the systems like poor management when it comes to maybe grazing or logging or road building mm-hmm. um, or, or overfishing. So um, so now we're, we're kind of um, using this low-tech process-based restoration, which is basically us taking um, materials from the area, wood and rocks from the area and putting it in the creek and and building structures that help the river um, do what it what it normally does, um, and so um, to make that maybe a little more clear, we're kind of like acting like beavers, mm. <laughs> <laughs> building um, what might be look like a beaver dam mm-hmm. um, or or um, some kind of structure. A lot of times, the um, river channels up in the high country have become incised so they're they've become lower and they're disconnected from the floodplain Mm -hmm. and so the water just goes down this one single channel Mm. and so what we're trying to do is raise up that water and spread it out across the historic floodplain again to keep the water up there and keep green and keep that habitat flourishing Mm -hmm. so we throw a bunch of sticks in (laughs) the creek and and um, try to back up the water and also catch the sediment that comes down and um, the normal geomorphic processes that are that are happening in the river, um, just to uh, kind of make it so that if you left the river alone for a hundred years for a century, it would do this anyway. But right. maybe we can get it in five or ten years mm-hmm. to, you know, to kind of just amplify that process. 
who wow. who manages this or who leads this? I mean, what describe the group of people that you're up there with? Yeah, it's a huge collaborative process. It's um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, the California Fish and Wildlife. Um, there's uh, the forest, whichever forest that we're in. It might be even private land or um, a conservancy that is managing the land. It's um, private landowners. There are a lot of inholdings in mm-hmm. these places um, and ranching um, easements. And then um, there are a lot of not-for-profit organizations also that are assisting to make this happen because it takes a lot of um, grant funding, it takes Mm. a lot of agency funding, and and a lot of different workers of different skill sets. So I um, am an independent contractor. I work Mm -hmm. for myself, but I for this work, I was um, working and hired by Trout Unlimited. Oh, right. Which is at, um, out of their Truckee office, a great organization, and uh, Jessica Strickland, the manager up there, um, wonderful person to work with. And they really um, make it happen because it's hard for, I think, a lot of the um, agencies to have the staff to to complete these kinds of big projects. Right. So is this a planned project for you to, you know, this the work that was done this summer, was that planned like way ahead of time or, and it was just serendipitous that it was after a big winter or did the work result because of the winter that we had? No, it's been ongoing. It takes a really long time to plan these projects because mm-hmm. it goes through a lot of... Um, analysis, environmental analysis mm-hmm. before it's allowed. And it really takes a lot of different people weighing in about what's the best um, way to move forward. You don't want to do anything too quickly because, mm-hmm. you know, these mountains and rivers have been formed over long periods yeah. of time, you know, so right. you don't want to just go in and change things. But um, so this has been planned for a long time okay. and will go on for the next decade. Also, this okay. work, it's not finished. We have many um, meadows and projects um, planned going into the future and we're um, going through different um, processes to make that happen, cool. but this when this winter was an amazing winter to be up there. It just was so <laughs> is amazing to see the creeks filled with water, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. and the um, just the just the flourishing wildlife up there. I think what strikes me listening to you talk, Beth, is. Um, you know, during the summers, I'm often driving 395 and I'm thinking, I often think about like Friends of the Inyo or others that are up there doing trail work, mm-hmm. you know, managing the trails that are created up there and repairing and what have you, or the the people up there doing fire mitigation work. And now there's this, and now I'm going to be thinking about these other groups of people <laughs> who are in the backcountry that you can't see. There's a right. lot of activity happening up there just to maintain, you know, the, the ecosystem, the natural yeah world that the rest of us kind of take for granted. I think I people think. don't even think about that, that, that all these river systems and all the ecology needs some kind of outside help, some yeah. maintenance from people. And they don't think about that. It's important work. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the most beautiful parts about the work too, that we get to be in the right relationship with land. I mean, that's mm-hmm. our goal is to mm-hmm. be in good relationship with the land and you could just leave it alone and just that would be wilderness, but you could also be working in the wilderness in a way that enhances the yeah. wilderness and our relation to, to it as people. We, we're everywhere. We're all over the place yeah. now at this point. We are. Cool. <laughs> well, we just talked a lot about how you spent your summer um, when you're not working, Beth, <laughs> at the library or in the back country. What do you, what do you and your family like to do just for fun around here? Oh, well, um, usually get up into the backcountry. <laughs> and I do every time. I'm a, I work a lot, um, but I really do like to to get out into the backcountry and have those um, experiences with wildlife. Some of my just favorite moments are, um, you know, coming face to face with a bobcat or um, a wolf or um, a thousand toads and frogs, like I did this summer. <laughs> uh, Kayaking, boating is one of my favorite um, pastimes when I get the chance. Do you still climb? I don't really climb Not too anymore. much anymore. Um, no, but I, I probably will again one day. But <laughs> I like to scramble on rocks up rivers. That's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a better way that's of climbing. Yeah. <laughs> that's about what I could do probably. <laughs> I don't even know if I could do that. <laughs> no. Yeah, but this summer, one of the highlights was um, really the numbers of frogs and toads. I know that sounds like a biblical plague or something to a lot of people, but it was, 
amazing after this big winter how many frauds and toads. I've never seen anything like it. Just a total explosion everywhere just to be able to sit and watch them and how they behave in water. And same with some of the fishes like the speckled dace, which is another California native fish that is really um, special. There were just thousands. It's usually a fish that's only found in small numbers here and there. Interesting. So That's cool. It is interesting. I mean, stuff that I wouldn't think about, you mm-hmm. know, again, the proliferation of certain types of creatures because of the heavy winter or just fish being washed out of their natural place mm-hmm. because of the the amount of water coming. And out. I think you did hear quite a bit about people pulling these larger than normal fish out of like Lake Mary and, mm. you know, you're the lakes around here, what you'd see on people posting on Facebook and mm-hmm. Instagram and all that. And, you know, they weren't planners. They were native fish. And now we know why. Now we know why. Yeah. It's cool. So Beth, we always ask our guests, what are you reading now? And I'm, I'm guessing with your interests, <laughs> you are always reading something. It's true. I, I have a large stack of books on my bedside table, like like you do as well, like <laughs> previous podcasts. But um, I well, I just started to read Eager, The Surprising Secret Lives of Beavers and Why They Matter by Ben Goldfarb, which I uh, can recommend just if you want to learn more about this kind of work that I'm doing, and I'm learning a lot about beavers. That's awesome. Um, so we have that in our library. So I just started reading that. Um, and I just finished... Um, a book called Brave the Wild River. It's the untold story of two women who mapped the botany of the Grand Canyon oh, by wow. Melissa um, Seveny. And that was a great read, a fantastic read. I recommend that. When, when, oh, when did they do that? <laughs> they did that in 1938. It was two women, um, Lois Jodder and Elzita Clover. Wow. And it was before Glen Canyon Dam was built. So... It was um, a really fascinating read with regard to the botany and women getting into botany and into the sciences and Mm -hmm. and what they faced at that time, but also um, going down the river at that time looked really different than it does today. And they used, um, Melissa, um, the author, used the private journals, letters, research, and indigenous knowledge to describe what that journey was like. And it was also a time when there weren't, you know, commercial river trips like there are today. So Mm. um, Norm Nevels was the man who wanted to start a commercial river rafting. And he took um, the women down uh, and this trip down down through the Cataract Canyon and Grand Canyons. And so it's wild. I mean, especially being a river guide on the Grand Canyon, it made me think, well, I didn't do anything compared to what these people are doing, you know. No, it sounds fascinating. It also kind of, we were ch- chatting earlier, it sounds like it would be a good book discussion mm-hmm. pick here yeah. for a nonfiction book. I'm looking at it now, Beth. It looks like it's brand new this summer and it got at least three starred reviews. So I hope people will pick this book up. Did we order one for Levining or should yeah, I? Yeah, I have okay. one in Levining. <laughs> awesome. And it's pretty quick read. So that's um, nice. And yeah, I do recommend it. It was, it was fun read. I've been reading some really long fiction books uh, for my, uh, <laughs> our book group up in Mono City and Levining. Yeah. We just read The Covenant of Water oh, by Abraham yeah. Verghese. And I, that was a beautiful, beautiful story. That one got great reviews as well. And I think there's a book group in Mammoth that's currently reading it as well. So that one's, as well as Will's, is reading it. So that one's getting a lot of traction on the east side. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, it was beautiful. And um, my book group before that, we read some great books. Um, I mean, actually, I think my favorite book I read this year was Lessons in Chemistry. Oh, so I was just going to bring that up, actually. I'm glad you did, but tell a little bit Well, I thought I'd mention it because I know it got turned into a TV adaptation and... And a lot of new people are getting introduced to it. And, yeah. um, but again, it's women in science. That's yeah. what made me think of it. Yeah. And yeah. it was really struck a chord with me because I just really could relate with a lot of it. And, um, but I did, I really liked the book. Um, you know, I did start watching the TV series. Is it good? <laughs> well, it's just really disappointing when you've read the book for me, you know, <laughs> it was just one of those moments because the book is so charming from the, the first page, it, right. um, talks about her, daughter and this yeah, incredible, I'm, unique, um, brilliant daughter and the way that she's raising her daughter. And then it just goes from there, all the details of the book. It's very digestible, easy to read, but, and it's about a really important topic that has a lot of hard parts to it, but it's written in such a funny, charming way. I just, I kind of laughed the whole time and it was like, 
you know, a, yeah. an experience, but every, you know, details from just the way that main character wears her hair <laughs> to yeah. the details about her dog are just so charming in the book. And so watching the TV adaptation wasn't, didn't quite do it for me, but Aww. sometimes I didn't, that I didn't get through it. I, I read the book and I really liked it. And I watched some of the television show and I couldn't get, I was like, no, not worth my time because the book was far superior. I mean, the acting was fine, but yeah, the the show wasn't for me. I haven't read the book, but we've talked about this many times. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's hard with a charming book, with a book that kind of captures you with its soul. Yeah, I think it's sometimes hard to translate that to the visual Mm -hmm. medium. It takes a really talented director and screenwriter or adapter yeah. or whatever. I don't know if Bonnie Garmus, did Bonnie Garmus do the screenplay too or? I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. That's a great recommendation yeah. too. Lessons, in, Lessons chemistry in Chemistry. Lessons in Chemistry is a hot, awesome. hot, really top seller this year. Very, very popular book. Mm-hmm. And the cover, yeah. it's one of those books where the cover, you know, don't judge a book by a cover. Yeah. <laughs> the cover is not the book. So open it up and <laughs> take a look. <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of a cutesy kind of cover. Yeah. But a lot of people reading it, so that's great. Yeah, it's out there. It's popular. Awesome. Well, yeah. listeners, we will have those titles listed on our website and on our Instagram post, so you don't have to pull over and write those down. Those are great recommendations. Thank you, Beth. And thanks so much for being with us today. Really appreciate you taking time away from the backcountry, the library, your family to be with us. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. It was really fun. Oh, and we forgot to talk about the Marmot, but just listeners oh, real quickly. Really quickly, yeah. Visit the Leadvining Library. Keep your eyes open. There might be a friendly, well, not friendly, probably, <laughs> local Marmot who lives there at least this summer. So um, just keep your eye out for yeah, it. Maybe we'll put a picture of, of it on our Instagram you if go. you send us a picture of it because it's so cute. Awesome. Well, thank you listeners for joining us for this episode of the Oxygen Starved Podcast. We appreciate your time and your ears listening to us. Please remember you can reach us on our Instagram page, O2Starved, and our website, OxygenStarvedPodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. Until we are with you again next time, take care and stay safe. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us here for Oxygen Star. Our outro music, Iron Bacon, is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod. In Competech.com, Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license.